Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Today's episode is about one of our mutually favorite things, space, the final frontier. It's weird because when previous generations talked about space travel or speculated about the possibilities, they were almost always thinking of this in terms of governments, state powers, countries, nations. You think of the USSR when the Soviet Union put Sputnik into space, then put the first uh, official human into space. Uh, (laughs) Story for another day. We think of the U.S. putting the first people on the moon But increasingly, nowadays, in recent years, people are thinking less about state powers in space and more about private entities, a world of very powerful corporations, world of very ambitious startups, and not a few eccentric billionaires. Maybe one day, uh, a lot of tourists. That's what we're talking about. The future of private space travel. Here are the facts. This is so strange. A lot of people may not be aware of this. But private space travel is not a brand new idea. Well, sure. I mean, think about like, you know, commercial airlines. I mean, those companies were making stuff for the government long before they expanded into the idea of tourism, of like air travel tourism, because it wasn't something that was uh, available or even viable in terms of what people could afford. Uh, It's always how it goes, right? I mean, the companies that make, you know, super, super high tech um, stuff for the government in terms of like data, um, that stuff reaches the public much, much later. But they've been doing stuff for the government all along. No exception with the space program. The private sector has always played some kind of role in developing new technologies for a government. We'll get into all of it, but think about the amount of government grants that go to private companies to create something new that then can be, you know, brought into the government's program to do a thing. Uh, 
especially it is especially true with flight, as you said, Noel, and rocketry. Rocketry, big time. There's a dude. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a dude named Goddard. You may know that name from a, a certain NASA space station, uh, Robert Goddard, who is officially the, the father of rocketry. And that dude, it's not like he was given a ton of money to throw into his inventing and uh, his testing. He, a lot of that money came out of his own pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, rocketry and flight are kind of the peanut butter and jelly, the great sandwich we call space exploration. And I love, like, I can understand where Goddard is coming from and even investors who might have initially been skeptical about his his concept. Because if you had never heard of a rocket and some guy described it to you while asking you for money, could you be blamed for saying, that's kind of crazy, man. Horses are where it's at. You know, uh, like because you're saying I'm going to put stuff in a tube, okay, and it's going to explode and it'll go somewhere. That's my idea. And they're like, okay, Robbie, uh, where? Well, uh, you know, uh, up, hopefully, kind of up, up and, and to the we'll, side. You know, up <laughs> and to the side. I mean, you know, it's, I'm sure a lot of people reacted to the idea of, of of flying in an airplane in the same way. I mean, any new technology that's a big swing is going to be so remarkable and outside of the norm that people are going to kind of balk at it initially. I mean, not everyone can be as forward thinking as like genius inventors. True. True. Uh, even inventors who were killed by their own inventions. Shout out to a fantastic Wikipedia article. <laughs> there are a lot okay, of I promise them. I'll stop. I've, Turns out the so guy many. that invented the wood chipper took a tumble right into his own wood chipper prototype and got Steve Buscemi all over the snow. Yeah. Woody Chippleton. <laughs> Long may <laughs> his memory remain. A blessing. Uh, yeah, so I'm glad that you mentioned airplane technology because as World War I hits, we know that war drives technological innovation. Uh, and as World War I hit, it brought along this amazing boom in airplane technology. It took airplane tech to unprecedented heights. Get it? The U.S. government was, I know, sorry, was hand in hand with private entities the whole time. And they wanted these uh, entities to uh, pioneer new industries, maybe without some of the political constraints that governments face, which is going to be a big part of today's show. The big notable thing here was something called the Air Mail Act of 1925. And this allowed private companies to start flying mail across the country and then they were flying human passengers not too much later, first across the country, then across the world. This is important because it establishes a strong precedent. And if we look at the evolution of commercial airlines, we see a pretty robust possibility that this pattern could repeat in the world of spaceflight. I mean, NASA sure is on board. They have been super down to clown with private entities since their early days. Because they'll say, hey, you already make widgets. Can you help us make a, a kind of space widget? You know, it's a, it's an oversimplification, but it's very true. Well, it's also sort of the differentiation between using space for war via satellites that obviously are really important and powerful when it comes to tracking, you know, um, enemy forces or mapping or whatever it might be, or guiding missiles and things like that to the idea of space exploration, which is maybe a little less sexy uh, in the in the war machine kind of uh, kind of model. Right. Or space uh, looking out a window. Well, that's the we'll yes. that. <laughs> that's its own kind of what the what, you know, but. 11 minutes and it's not even really space, whatever. Okay. So yes, uh, the, one of the big innovations we see is uh, there are a lot of private companies who are trying to do stuff with mixed results. The first object in space that is built entirely by a company, not a government is the Telstar one. It's a communication satellite and it is launched in 1962, but it like all the satellites in the U.S. are still being launched by NASA, not private companies. The first private company to launch its own thing into space happens in 1982. A company called, in a burst of creativity, Space Services Incorporated launches the Conestoga One from an island off the coast of Texas. They get to about uh, 192 miles in altitude. But even before that, you had... Things like the German company Utrog, uh, which <laughs> sounds 
so epic. Uh, Ultrog was trying to develop its own space propulsion systems back in the 70s. Ultimately, they mothballed it in the 80s. And then for decades and decades uh, leading up to the 80s, the U.S. government said only NASA can launch satellites into space. No matter who builds them, you got to work with our team to get them up into the ink. And this changed. In 1984, Congress passed the law as part of a bigger package of deregulation uh, to let private companies do their own launches whenever they wish, as long as they meet, you know, a cavalcade of constraints and paperwork. But this was so important because this set the stage for what we're encountering decades later, a brand new space race. And it's pay to play, baby. Pay so much. Play for 11 minutes max. Yeah, it's it's really interesting <laughs> because, you know, when we were growing up, when we were younger guys, little kids in elementary school and high school, uh, there was a space race occurring then in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s. Uh, it's just, I don't know, for some reason, it, it, nothing really impacted me personally. Uh, I don't I don't remember any of that stuff. I can you can look it up now, things that were occurring in the 1990s, but nothing was successful. There is, you know, there's a reason why there's no uh, space tourism company. That's kind of the grandfather that we're thinking about when these new companies are popping up in the 2010s. Yeah, there's a reason Disney isn't offering space flights right now. You know what I mean? Because if it were more feasible from a technological and financial perspective, then of course people would get into it. Who doesn't want to be the first to be able to do that, right? Uh, as we record, there are people who qualify as space tourists, but very, very few. And spoiler, the majority of those folks are very well off, even, even after paying for that ticket. Uh, so you're absolutely right. There's mixed success, but we still see the pattern of these companies interacting very closely with their home country's governments. And business booms in the early 2000s, but this would be nothing in comparison to what we can call the space rush of the 2010s, which is just a phrase we made up. It's not official. It's a street name. Uh, there was a great article by Svetla bin Itzak over at the Washington Post who, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the numbers here and uh, bin Itzak sums it up beautifully if you want to get a sense of the amount of money involved that we're talking about it's it's still even reading it it's kind of tough to wrap your head around over the last 15 years commercial activity in space more than tripled growing from 110 billion dollars in 2005 to nearly 357 billion dollars in 2020 commercial activity in 2020 accounted for about 80 percent of the estimated 447 billion global space economy that year Morgan Stanley projects that the sector will rocket cha -cha -cha -cha, to more than uh, $1 trillion by 2040, with growth concentrated in the commercial space sector. And just really quickly, I mean, that, that doesn't mean space tourism. It's much more than that. It means more commercial satellites, smaller commercial satellites, all kinds of uh, ways that data is going to play a huge part in this, much more than like, you know, your billionaires doing their 15-minute joyride. Yeah, that's that's a lot of, you know, $250,000 tickets. If you think that's that number 447 billion is actually coming from private space tourism. That that's uh, yeah, that's a lot of tickets. That that number by the way comes from Virgin Galactic, 250,000. And uh that is that is one of the more affordable tickets for this one. So I mean comparatively, of course, but there's another thing here, uh manufacturing is going to be a growing piece of the sector. Uh take for example fiber optic cables. If you're making fiber optic cables in zero gravity, they're going to be cleaner and just like markedly better than cables made on Earth. So making those is huge business. Space factory. Yeah, but we know how much it costs to ship payloads back to Earth. How do you account for that? You just drop it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like unravel on the way down or burn up in the atmosphere. It seems like, <laughs> right. you know, whenever you hear about space missions, you know, exploratory space missions, the payload amount is always a huge part of the cost in terms of like how much stuff do they have on the on the vessel you know we will get into it but blue origin is specifically working on something for that purpose uh like some kind of mixed used 
international space station like structure that will just that they'll continually send flights up and down to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, these these launch costs, though, are falling as we record. I think as of April of 2022, there were some private companies whose rate worked out to about $1,200 per pound of payload to reach low Earth orbit, which, again, is totally different from going to the moon. Still, You're still a long way away from the moon, even though you can see it from here. So, <laughs> Okay. So the, the calculations I was talking about were more for deep space exploration. Still, so if you, if you, if you prohibitively, it's still a lot. Yeah. Twelve hundred per pound is, is is a lot, but you know, going further would, would obviously probably four or five x that number. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's you know that's not counting all the stuff you have to do to keep humans alive outside of the environment they have literally evolved to exist in. Space truckers, huh? I'd watch it. Space truckers. Space road truckers. Space, space yeah. road truckers. Yeah. I mean, there's also the idea of a roads? space elevator. Where we're going, we won't need roads. There's, there's also the idea of a space elevator, which kind of is, it's a really good idea, but it probably won't work because for the same reason that you don't see a lot of dirigibles, it's easy to attack and someone will just yeah, mess no it joke. up. Yeah, which is a shame. I miss airships. But, uh, but yes, so now... As we're recording, if you're familiar with the private space industry, you know there are a lot of players and a lot of them are specializing in certain parts of a launch process or certain components. But then there are really big dogs, three of the big dogs now, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic. Uh, You can also think of these as Musk, Bezos, and Branson because they're definitely their babies. Uh, They all made some pretty profound breakthroughs in uh, just last year and this year. It's the kind of stuff that previously only governments could do. We're talking about taking astronauts to the ISS. We're talking about flying tourists into space. I got to get over that. Uh, And even delivering cargo to low Earth orbit. And then, of course, one of the biggest ones, reusable booster rockets, reusable uh, launch technology, which is huge. And then you get into the idea of like space warehouses, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, different like shipping and receiving hubs in space. It's fascinating to think about, but is it like essentially junking up outer space the same way we've junked up our planet? And who's in charge of who gets to put what where? Yeah. And, you know, I just would like to remind everybody, the United States government attempted a reusable rocket type situation with the shuttles one time. And that went really well by really well you mean exploded right well one did but mostly it was uh too difficult to maintain a working shuttle after flight 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 and then using you know parts of the rocket again right right sustainability i mean it's it's an incredibly punishing process on any craft right to get it from earth and then back to earth under tremendously difficult circumstances but but yes, we, we are going to explore some of that. Uh, I think I had said this off air earlier, but if you were not from Earth and you were approaching the planet from outside, it would look kind of like the stereotypical uh, redneck home, right? Like like the yard littered with rusting vehicles and trash and, and refrigerators in varying states of disrepair. That alone is tricky because you have to account for that. Uh, Physicists, astronauts, all the people involved in this are so incredibly intelligent. They're doing math that I'll say the average person probably couldn't comprehend, uh, myself included. You know what I mean? I'm very glad there's no one like me making those calculations because people would die. It's the kind of math from those beautiful mind kind of brain meltdown, you know, gifts, Mm -hmm. right? Just so. And if you ask supporters of these endeavors, they'll say, hey, buddy, this is just the beginning. Get in on the ground floor of this space elevator. You don't have to look too far at all to find wildly ambitious, but not implausible claims and goals. We're talking a reusable system for passage to and from Mars. We're talking, of course, mining initiatives, even a proposed space hotel. There's a lovely little video on YouTube about it. We'll see how it works out. But 
May surprise you to learn, fellow conspiracy realists, not everyone is so optimistic. On the other side of our figurative launch pad, critics are arguing that the privatization of space should be a cause for deep and growing concern. What are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. Yeah, so not not everybody's, it turns out, is 100% on board with private entities being in charge of space exploration. And there, there are several factors behind this. Yeah, there are. And like at first, I just want to bring up a, a, a thought. Like, 
I think I mentioned it earlier. I think, you know, obviously NASA doesn't do the space shuttle program anymore. So it left a lot of kind of room, you know, in the, in the, in the space for private entities to come in and kind of pick up the slack where that wasn't happening. And I think largely that's because there wasn't really any advantage to be gained from it, at least from the like Warhawks kind of perspective. So it takes private companies and billionaires who are super keen on space. First of all, sort of like, uh, reminds me of, um, the dude from Jurassic Park, you know, uh, what the heck was his name? The white haired guy, David Attenborough's brother. Anyway, you know, someone who's like, he's fascinated with this stuff. I'm sure all three of these guys, Branson, Musk and Bezos, they're like billionaires are often like little boys at heart. Like they're interested in this stuff, but obviously they have a long game that they're playing as well. But if it wasn't for NASA kind of backing off, I don't think the space would have been uh, freed up enough for them to really swoop in the way they have been. I think that's a good observation. Yeah. And they have very different sets of constraints, but we're looking at the factors that lead to people, as I said, not being 100% on board with private space travel. One of the first ones is inequality. It's continuing to skyrocket. Ideology aside, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, the simple reality is that more and more wealth is in the hands of fewer and fewer people, and that trend is probably going to continue for some time. That means there's a possibility, distant for now, but not implausible, that a privileged few will be able to leave Earth behind, maybe orbiting in an Elysium-like paradise while billions of other people below struggle with Earth's ongoing and worsening climate disasters. So it's going to be a great view as long as you don't look down too closely. Yeah, don't look out those windows that were specifically designed to look down at the Earth. It reminds me of the Voyager Space Station Hotel that you mentioned right before the break, Ben, one of these private space stations that's going to be created, theoretically. Or Blue Origin has a new thing that they're trying to build called the Orbital Reef that's going to be a lot like that. That's the one that looks like the Dr. Evil penis shuttle, right? Uh, the Blue Origin yes. <laughs> ship that goes up. Yeah, well, the Orbital Reef looks a little different. Maybe uh, like a modular version of that that's just a little okay. bigger, kind of similar to Blue the ISS. Blue Origin was the name of the, of the ship. It's also the name of the company. I believe so. Wait, am no, I wrong? Blue Origin is the name of the company. So we've already got two proposed examples of things like this, right? All you got to do is expand that scale, but 10x or whatever, and you may very well have something like that, Ben, because these things are supposedly going to have sustainable growing plants on them, you know, food sources, and pretty much anything that a human being would need to survive without Earth. Yeah, and it is scary, and there are there are a lot of uh, a lot of things that get glossed over Let's just spend a second on this. There are so many things that get glossed over about living in space. It is terrible for the human body. You would ideally, for a sustainable solution, you would try to have some sort of gravity. And, and that's like, that's one of many problems. There's also radiation shielding. There's also the fact that we don't know, um, there were experiments with sex in space, but we as a civilization, have no idea how a person being born in space, like we don't know what their life would be like. We don't know exactly how it would affect everything from the formation of their brain in zero gravity to, you know, puberty and stuff like that. And their muscles, too. I imagine, you know, gravity is constantly exerting force on our muscles. So even if we're living a relatively sedentary life, uh, you're still having some calories being burned just by the force of gravity on your your body. Yeah. And then, okay. So that, that's a different, that's a problem that uh, governments will encounter as well for the next factor of the problems with private space travel. We have to look at monopolies. Remember, these are not charities. These are not volunteer organizations yet. Uh, They are for-profit entities. So let's enter the realm of thought experiments. Imagine you're Matt Frederick you have uh, invented something amazing. Now you're a billionaire and you own a successful space exploration conglomerate. By the nature of your position, you have integrated everything both horizontally and vertically. What we mean by that is you own the mines that supply the metals to the factories on Earth that you also own, and those in turn build the rockets that you own from stem to stern, soup to nuts. This is a Matt Frederick original. 
That's what's up. That's what's up. That is the motto of the company. <laughs> and and like there's an arrow because it's that's what the, what's up is space. Yeah. 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 We call it space jams. With a Z. Welcome. Welcome to <laughs> it. That's what's up. Yeah. So you can also in this scenario, as a space tycoon, which is what you would be, you may have exclusive rights to certain things, like passage to a lunar base, right? Matt Frederick's company, Space Jams, has made the lunar base, and they're the only way, like riding on one of those ships is the only way to get to that base. Might have exclusive mining rights. That would be a big, big deal. That's actually one of the hugest deals, right? And, you know, in the case of a real company like SpaceX, you one day might be the only way people can visit Mars. Here's a silly question, maybe, maybe not. And I definitely, you know, I, I know as much as the next space enthusiast about the makeup of planets and, you know, what, and kind of it's a lot of toxic gases, for example, that like gas giants like Jupiter. But are there any um, uh, resource rich planets that we know of that would be viable for mining the hell out of? We don't even need the planets, man. We got uh-huh. asteroids. That's where uh, the asteroids are what what you're looking for, uh, for a lot of these mining interests. And Japan has done some pretty amazing work uh, just figuring out the mechanics and nuts and bolts of how to how to touch one of those asteroids, how to get some stuff. Uh, And then comets could also be uh, an agglomeration of resources. The sky is no longer the limit Um, and you might not need planets, but it's not it's nice to have them. You know what I mean? It, humanity case. can Just have a case second you home, it. you know, so that we don't look broke when we meet aliens. <laughs> Which, yeah. <laughs> so we have some good moon swag to flex, you know, <laughs> on our chains. Oh, I just, that freaking movie, I just keep thinking about that Netflix movie. Uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on the name. Don't look up, I think. Oh, yeah. Just keep thinking about that. This entire conversation. It should be, yeah. A very divisive movie. A lot of people that I've talked to really loved it. I haven't seen it yet. It kind of got slammed, but I believe it got some Oscar nominations. Not that that means a damn thing, but I, I want to watch it. Uh, but it's weird. It got like kind of middling reviews, but some people that I know that I really respect their opinions liked it a lot. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I can see why people might not dig it, but it definitely has an agenda and a point to make. Uh, would be very interested to hear what you think of the ending when you get a chance to watch it. That goes for you too, fellow conspiracy realists. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Don't Look Up. Uh, and love to hear your thoughts on Space Jams, the uh, space monopoly that we are currently creating, because every step along the way, if you are the space tycoon, you can press your advantage. You can engage in rent seeking. You can get a little vig, right? And people will work with you because you are the only game in town. You can decide what people in space or on the moon or on an asteroid or on Mars or wherever, what they can and can't do. You can control the information they can and can't access because you're also in charge of the communications and you can control what they can or can't buy. So it's like, Welcome to Mars, a subsidiary of Illumination Global Unlimited. Like you are the company at that point. By its very nature, any initial private space colony is going to be very much like a company town from the days of old. You know, you can't, like, you're a government on Earth. You say, hey, you guys are breaking the law, right? You're violating what we consider basic human rights. They'll say, okay, Earthling. Come up here and tell me, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Short of shooting a nuke, are you going to spend more billions of dollars to come give me a dressing down in public? Or do you want me to keep shipping these medals to you? Mm. I'll go with the medals, please. Yeah, I'm hanging up. We're going to play Space Beacon. All the medals. <laughs> See you, Mr. President. And, and I got to say, when you said Space Monopoly, though, Ben, I immediately just pictured of like another branded Monopoly where it's the same horrible game. Just with like planets instead of Park Place. What would be okay? So I guess Park Place would be like Earth, maybe. Yeah, Space Monopoly is a great idea. I'd be surprised if they haven't done that because there's every other themed version of Monopoly out there, except for stuff they don't want you to know. Which I I don't think we should have a Monopoly game. I don't approve of it. <laughs> Matt's not solemnly saying no, but 
Speaking of those branded Monopoly games, apparently a big plot point of the new season of Stranger Things got spoiled by the latest Stranger Things branded Monopoly game. Like, so I guess somebody got the batch early and then someone got an advanced copy and they took a picture. I don't know what it is, so no spoilers here, but careful. It's a slippery slope, these branded Monopoly games. Yes, yeah. They'll lead you to the devil as surely as a Ouija board. Kidding. Back to space. Let's talk about some of the things that could happen in a monopolized world or in a monopolized community like this. Laws can get replaced. The company replaces the government. And this is common in a lot of science fiction. So laws are no longer around, really. Instead, they're best practices. They're company policies. And you would better hope that you are happy with that or make your peace with it because it's tough to leave. This is not like, you know, quitting a a job or a side gig and walking out the door and then uh, posting uh, an angry manifesto on Twitter. You will have to pay to leave if you are allowed to do so. So just let's go full dystopian. We are on a lunar colony. We'll call it Moonville in a burst of creativity. So we're Moonvillians and we're part of our own kind of society and hierarchy. The bulk of the people who live in Moonville are staffing resorts for a privileged few, VIPs, space tourists, celebrities. They're the waiters. They're the custodians. They're the, um, you know, the people doing the laundry, the people working on the HVAC. And they feel like they are getting exploited. And they feel like they're getting stiffed. Ah, so it's a utopia that very quickly backslides into a dystopia. Mm-hmm. Tale as old as time. Yeah, and they uh, in this bottle episode, maybe they attempt some sort of collective action. They might try to protest. They might try to do something like uh, unionization. They get shut down immediately. There's no recourse. This is moon law, you know? Uh, but let's say they get fired. They get fired and they're sent home to Earth, but they're sent home with a bill for their return flight, a crippling expense that could keep them as debt slaves for the rest of their natural lives. Oh, that's like the way that immigrant workers are exploited oftentimes, where they uh, have their passports um, uh, confiscated and they're forced to work under horrible conditions and they get stuck with the bill to get their papers and stuff. To, yeah, sure, you can leave, but it'll cost you this much and... Uh, You can't afford that, so you might as well just stay here forever. Precedent. Patterns. The human species can be accused of a lot of things, but not unbridled originality in the good and the bad. So, yeah. Or empathy. Yeah, or or (laughs) empathy as well. Uh, Or if they decide to stay, maybe these people who are part of the working class of Moonville are already in debt because of the process you just described, Noel, and because the checks that they are paid are not enough to cover the astronomically expensive cost of housing, air, water, and food. We're killing it with puns today. But, you know, that's how company towns work. You get paid in scrip, right? You basically get your bin bucks, and that's not ever quite enough to get you out of debt by design. It's not a bug. But then we take it one step further. What if a real revolution occurs, a physical altercation? What extent would the um, corporate authorities go to to protect this massively expensive, massively fragile colony? Why send in troops? You can just shut off the air, you know? Uh, And it's scary to think about, but it is a possibility. And that means to me, don't want to wax too poetic here, but that means to me the first things built in a colony like Moonville are going to be habitats for people to live and means to produce consumables, food, water, air. The second stuff built will be things like labs and, of course, business ventures. But the third thing built may well end up being a prison, and that should scare you. So we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor. Wait. wait. No? I disagree. I think prisons is four. Mm -hmm. I think three Mm -hmm. is um, robotic drone sentinels of some sort that Ah, are the police officers. The security. And then, yes. Yeah. They just bring those with the first shipment. They just come in with the first shipment. Yeah. Don't ask what's in that box. Uh, Anyway, we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and then we're going to explore... Uh, a sinister and effective way to get around these human rights concerns. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we've returned. So we talked about the very real dangers of companies replacing governments for a captive population in space, which is not a sentence I imagine saying this week. But we have to propose another possibility. And unfortunately, like these other ideas we brought up, this is a possibility with strong precedent. What if instead of employees, you use prisoners? people who already have their human rights curtailed, people who already have very limited ability to redress grievances. 
Think back to the early days of modern Australia. The United Kingdom was had, had tons of draconian laws during the industrial era. There was a desperately poor population in overcrowded cities. And as a solution to this, after making so many things death penalty offenses, like ridiculously trivial crimes would carry the death penalty, the UK first started putting people in boat prisons, like these floating things in the harbor that weren't seaworthy vessels, but they just, they held prisoners off the coast. And then when that didn't work, when that stopgap wasn't enough, they started shipping prisoners to a part of Australia called New South Wales. This was a punishment known as transportation in lieu of the death penalty. And the first penal colony was founded on January 26, 1788. You guys remember that really awesome sequence? And I think it's the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie where they're on like a prison ship, like basically a prison space station where everyone's got like magnet boots mm-hmm. where they, have, they can't, they can only walk in certain areas or whatever. It doesn't seem like that'd be too far off. Could be a good use of space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also the prisoners in Australia were not just sitting around in lockup. They were essentially conscripted colonists. They were building the colony. That's how it is in prison in America. And they're not building colonies, but they're building stuff for all these companies, you know. Yeah, license plates. You know all about that. There's that movie, that the 20, 22nd, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Firefighters, construction, timber industry, precedent. Again, more patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, if you are one of these Australian conscript colonists, Life kind of sucks. Food is scarce. A lot of people don't have the agrarian knowledge they need to grow food in this unfamiliar environment. And it wasn't until like the early 19th century that uh, a governor said, hey, maybe Sydney and New South Wales can be something other than a gigantic prison. Uh, And as a result of that, you know, right now, I think the statistic is something like roughly 20% of modern day Australians can trace can trace their ancestry back to someone who was transported by the United Kingdom. So history stays with us. You know, Faulkner's right when he says the past isn't past. And then, I mean, fast forward to the modern day. There are roughly 2 million people in the U.S. incarceration system, prison, jails, so on. And they have no hope of getting out for decades or, in some cases, ever getting out. What if you were one of these people and you were offered a choice? Get this announcement. And it says, come work for our company on the moon. Come help build Moonville. You'll get a reduced sentence, but you'll also one day win your freedom and you'll be participating in the most ambitious human experiment since the day that first primate stood on its hind legs. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the Great Depression. It's like, come out California way, you know? But I mean, not with prisoners necessarily, but with poor people, which are essentially their own kind of prisoners. Mm -hmm. That's that's a very astute observation. I mean, we were were talking about this a little bit off air with Mission Control. If you got that offer, what's your over-under on saying yes? Would it depend? Matt, I think you brought up, maybe it depends on how long someone was going to be in regular prison anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think if you got hit with a life sentence, I could imagine that making sense, right? Uh, Or maybe, you know, again, we're all speculating a ton here, but Mm -hmm. maybe you do something illegal to get 10 years on purpose. Hopefully that isn't too violent, uh, just so that you can get your own trip to the moon because you wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. Oh, like those Ooh, unforeseen, yeah. unforeseen, like those guys. That's that's a real precedent, too. There are people who have committed um, petty crimes so that they can go to prison and have housing and food like people who and health care, health care, health care of yeah. some sort. Thanks. It's true. It's true, folks. Uh, and that might sound weird to people outside of the United States, but it's not an infrequent occurrence. I mean, you know, I'm sure that living in prison is no picnic, but they spend more, more money on a prisoner in terms of government investment than they do on homeless people. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question about it. You get uh, three square meals a day, access to exercise, books. You know, you just got to avoid the occasional shanking. Oof. Well, most most people as I understand it, in prison who are 
like doing doing serious time, most people there are just trying to keep their head down. You know, it's there's an old totally. there's an old saying where they say you only do two days. It's the day you go in and the day you go out. Uh, that that kind of mentality, which I think is philosophical, uh, but a cold comfort nonetheless. So we can see how people would say, okay, yeah. I'll go to Moonville. It beats prison. And, you know, if we if we want to further just speculate about what could be done here, if a private prison system wanted to enact something like this, you could theoretically have prerequisites for the prisoners who are there for the types of crimes, for maybe the physical fitness of a certain, you know, type that you're looking for. Specifically, if you're looking for those prisoners to do, oh, I don't know, mining on the moon or a moon of Jupiter or something to that effect. Um, it, it's kind of creepy. It's, it's really creepy to think about because you could, you could restrict eligibility to most people, but have a specific type of prisoner that becomes the space prisoner. Sure. And then, you know, Ben, we were talking a little bit off air about our friend, friend of the show, Peyton Fisher, uh, who's a brilliant lawyer. And he did, I think sort of like a mock trial and he was in law school about the idea of space law and, it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I guess it would be sort of like those outposts in Alaska, I guess, or in Antarctica, rather, where, like, there would be regions that are controlled, kind of, but you can't really plant a flag in space. Is there a precedent for that? Just in out open space? So what laws would apply? They would basically write new space laws, I think, kind of. Yeah, yeah. What's happening now is kind of outdated. Uh, right now, we've got two dystopian scenarios. Shout out to Jonathan Strickland for ruining that word for me. One, a brutal company town. Secondly, a future prison farm. Neither of them sounds super appealing, but ethics aside, they could work pretty well, especially when you're thinking of them in the context of some vaunted greater good. And there are other more cheerful scenarios like a um, an independent lunar government maybe in time or technocracy, but they would also have their own problems because th there would be precedent, but this would be the first kind of endeavor of its kind. And this is where we get to your question, Noel. At this point, it's fair to ask. So what has stopped a major corporation from doing this already? A lot of the technology is there, right? To at least make an attempt, even if the long-term success of that attempt is very much up in the air. I kid you not, the main thing stopping these endeavors is paperwork, specifically one very old piece of paperwork from all the way back in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty. This bad boy explicitly states that no one can go to another planet or the moon and pop a flag on it and say, ha ha, this is me now. This is uh, Dave and Busters. Don't call it IO anymore. Yeah, unless they have bigger space guns. That seems pretty non-binding at the end of the day. If things really took off, pun entirely intended, uh, then all of a sudden there'd be a war for space. Well, yeah, but the thing is that war would take place on Earth. Uh, also true. It, it would be between nations, right? Like all, the, all those who signed the treaty would be angry at whichever nation decided the treaty didn't matter. And there's a lot of work about militarization in space, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, check out our earlier episode, by the way, folks, on militarization in space. There are laws about it, but those laws also, as we're going to see, are kind of outdated and they have a lot of loopholes. They're, they're flawed. They're not perfect documents. Uh, there's a great article in Science Focus with a writer named Peter Ward, and he breaks down some of the issues with this. He notes that when this was signed in 1967, the private space sector wasn't really around, right? And so it's not clear how some of these rules would apply to private companies. And then secondly, and Ward is maybe being a little bit cynical here, but I agree, there's no way, in Ward's opinion, this agreement will last much longer because anyone with a plan to land on the moon or Mars and stay there is going to run into the Outer Space Treaty and the money is on the wealthy and powerful winning out against an old loophole-ridden document. What do you guys think about that? Too Sorry, that, 
that, that, that was much more my question. It wouldn't be governments that would sneak into space or just do it, take it upon themselves. It'd be the private sector because they'd have developed the technology to do it because they can move so much faster than the government can for the most part, unless they were like in league with the government. If they were really doing it, they could secretly do it and then just boom. Now we own space or we own this sector of space and you come at us, we'll blast you with our space rockets. I'm being silly, but also not that far off from where we are. Yeah, it's I mean, you know, look, world governments, intelligence agencies keep a very close eye on everything that launches. There's not really a way to hide a satellite, nor is there a way to hide a launch. Uh, But once you get up there and establish a toehold, it could be very difficult to remove that presence for multiple reasons. But I I love the point we're bringing up here. Uh, You know, lobbying is one of the most powerful tools of the powerful few. It's got a, it's undergone a renaissance and explosion in recent decades. Private space companies are part of the game. They understand the power, not saying they're sinister at all. They're doing a very rational thing, which is trying to um, nudge toward policy that makes their job and their ambitions easier to achieve. And for now, there's all a hypothetical, but even though it's hypothetical, it's important to note supporters of private space initiatives, some of uh, your faithful hosts included, have a valid point when they say, well, you know what? Getting to space costs money. And the research involved does have real world benefits for the uh, us terrestrial schmucks stuck on Earth. And at no point... So far, has any billionaire or private company ever said, heck yeah, we're going to make Mars a, a prison colony. Three cheers for us and our Q4 profits. No one says that. And, and there's an advantage to private companies. Matt, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we were recording. NASA exists at the whim of politicians and the public, right? So they can, their budget can swing or can get cut uh, depending upon what administration's in power or who's who's running Congress and what their beliefs or, I guess, in theory, the beliefs of their constituents are. Private companies don't have to do that. And that's, I'm still trying to figure out if that's a pro or a con. I think it could go either way. I, I think it's a little bit of both. The one thing I wanted to bring up, just because I think it makes a lot of sense here, guys, just before we get out of here with regards to that, Ben, is a problem with NASA going back to the space shuttle program that we've kind of briefly mentioned here in the show already. The Challenger disaster of 1986. And it's specifically because NASA is dealing with a ton of engineering issues when developing this technology, the shuttle itself, but most importantly, those rockets that the thing needs to get up into space. And you need time to fix problems, right? You to develop these things. That's one of the major things we've talked about. You need tons of time to develop this tech. And NASA didn't have the time that they needed in the 1980s, in those mid-1980s, to really get these rockets to where they needed to be because of external pressures from the government when it comes to timeline, we need you to launch X number of shuttles on a calendar year in order for us to get enough satellites up there and to justify the costs uh, of this program, right? Uh, talking about the budget there, Ben. In this case, if you've got a private company that has a budget that's agreed upon by the board of governors or whoever's running the corporation um, or you know just the CEO or whatever, and then the external pressures on that budget and how many flights they are able to get up in the air and how much money they're able to generate from those flights is going to be from shareholders, the public. And if they can't deliver enough on what they've, you know, uh, projected that they're going to do so enough flights, then the shareholders are going to leave and the stock price is going to fall and the entire company is going to fall apart. Well, and that just means constant scaling more and more and more and more trips out there. We talked off air, uh, compared this to kind of what's happened with Mount Everest and all of these kind of rich, you know, climber types that want to go on some mystical quest with a Sherpa. It's led to just trash being strewn all over the beautiful peaks of Mount Everest. Yeah. And that external pressure to grow is what causes things like the Challenger disaster, because it's pushing the tech, the development of the tech beyond uh, it's a threshold of safety. Right. 
Right. And this also occurred uh, in multiple instances in the Soviet space program. So, unfortunately, there's no reason to imagine that it wouldn't occur again in the future. Yeah, there was a Virgin Galactic uh, vehicle that crashed in 2014 as they were trying to develop and it killed a pilot. Thankfully, you know, sadly for that pilot and that pilot's family, but thankfully it was just a single pilot running a test rather than, you know, a group of people on a Virgin space flight trying to go up into suborbit. Mm-hmm. Agree. And this is a strange thing because it can be difficult for a lot of folks to take these ideas seriously. A lot of what we're discussing today remains for now in the realm of the hypothetical, but how long will that be the case? How long will this be the stuff of science fiction? As we established earlier, science fiction is a, a genre with an expiration date, and often it becomes just science fact. But, uh, you know, space travel, like all the other ages of exploration before it, may well carry the sins of humanity's past somewhere in its figurative cargo hold. And if modern civilization cannot learn from those past horrors, there is realistically very little to stop humanity from repeating them. And that's maybe what we leave you with today. I get so excited when we talk about space. Uh, If I, I, now that you've put the idea in my head, Matt, if Moonville happens, I don't know if I'm above faking a crime to get in prison to go on the moon. Uh, I don't know. You just got to be something that shows you have an acuity for moon mining. That's all. (laughs) Right. I just hope there's moon and nights there. Remember the Moonanites? I do. Hope you can see this, because I'm doing it as hard as I can. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I want the space ice cream. I hope that's still a thing. I want the... Um, oh, yeah. I grab some of that every time I'm at a museum gift shop. You yeah. Know, a vaguely science museum. I love it. I like the Neapolitan. Can I ask you guys a question sure. to close out? Yeah. What's your favorite or what you feel is the most accurately representative film about space future that's not like pie in the sky wild sci-fi that's more like realistic you know kind of this is what it might be like interstellar i think is what comes to mind for me is as, as an example space balls got it <laughs> <laughs> yeah god uh, gravity gravity was pretty good gravity was good i really like ad astra ad astra uh, the one with Brad Pitt that one. from not long okay. ago yeah i mean just some of the stuff that they shot on the lunar surface you know the some of those some of those things, it, the tech felt very real to me. And a little known fact, that's also where they shot the moon landing. Mm-hmm. Where Kubrick shot the mm-hmm. same sound Do check out uh, a fantastic Mitchell and Webb look uh, conspiracy sketch series where they talk about the moon landing. Uh, it is, oh, it's wonderful. I didn't want to spoil it. Just go to YouTube now, look it up. And while you're on the internet, why not reach out to us? Let us know what you think about the future of private space travel. Is it overall a really good thing? Is it a necessary evil? Is it the wrong move on a macro level? We want to hear your thoughts. We can't wait for you to dig in with us. We try to be easy to find on the internet. That's right. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. And of course, you can find us on YouTube with the handle Conspiracy Stuff. On Instagram, we're Conspiracy Stuff Show. And if you frequent that page, you might have noticed of late a lot more fun content, some memes. Um, If anyone's a member of our Facebook group, here's where it gets crazy. That's a great place to submit to us your favorite topical conspiracy memes that may well find their way on to the Instagram feed. Be part of the community. We love you. Yes. Also, hey, there's a sweepstakes going on right now to win some cool stuff, including our book and a poster that's signed by us. Ooh, lucky you. <laughs> our signatures. <laughs> We're hey, it's, it's been good for some folks. I'm just not looking forward to having to sign all the things. I, you ever wonder, like, when you sign that many things, is, your, is the consistency of your signature just going to kind of drift? Eventually, you're just kind of just slopping an X on the thing? No, because we take this stuff very seriously. I think the most I ever had, the, the most things I had to sign um, or do, like, a repetitive signature was probably around 150, uh, 150, or maybe up to 200. And I'll be honest, uh, I put it in. We'll probably, the three of us are going to get together. We'll probably take breaks, I think. I don't know how our process, are we going to work in shifts? Are we going to sit around a table and just like one person does it, passes it to the left, another person. Yeah, just so that's how they do it. It's an assembly line. Yeah. yeah. All right.
well, we should probably also have some coffee for that one. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You can head on over to stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com and learn more about that sweepstakes or check out our Instagram at Conspiracy Stuff Show. We also can be contacted via phone. You can dial on your phone 1-833-STDWYTK. When you call in, give yourself a cool moniker and nickname and let us know if we can use that name and your message on the air. You've got three minutes. You can say whatever you'd like. If you've got more to say than can fit into that message, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.